Good morning to you all. I'm going to give you a fairly easy task to start off with this morning. I want you to imagine just growing up with a perfectly normal name. And I think most of you here have one of those. Um, you're going through life just fine. And then all of a sudden something happens and you realise that your name is not what it once was. Or maybe it's not what you thought it once was. I imagine that that might be something along the lines of how the other Adolf Hitler felt. The Namibian civil rights activist and politician. How he felt when he discovered that he'd been named after a, a Nazi dictator. And it's probably also how the other Donald Trump felt when his namesake came into power and became the President of the United States. Uh, the other Donald Trump is a very well respected and highly regarded oncologist uh, who is the director of a US Cancer Institute. And you can imagine how his life probably changed. Imagine having to fill in forms or trying to book a table at a restaurant in your name. Everyone would think that you were joking. It's probably also how the many, many thousands of perfectly lovely Karens in this world have felt over the last few years as they have witnessed their name plummeting in popularity from at one stage being the third most popular female name back in the 1960s, mid-1960s, right down to the bottom of the list. You don't hear of many babies being named Karen at the moment. It's around about 635th most popular name. And of course, this fall was accompanied by the adoption of the name as a meme and as slang for a middle-class white woman who is perceived as entitled or excessively demanding. No one in the 60s or 70s who named their precious daughter Karen could ever have imagined what would be done to that name some years down the track. And now all of those perfectly lovely Karens have to live with it. And so it was for our 11th apostle today, Judas. Not the Judas that everyone's thinking of when we say the name Judas. Not the disciple who betrayed Jesus. Not the one who forever maligned the name Judas in the eyes of Christians to come through all the generations. The other Judas is the one that we are dealing with today. Now, like Simon, who we covered last week, Judas was a very popular name back in first century Palestine. Simon, as we said last week, was number one. Judas was around about number four, apparently. Both of them were extremely popular for the same sorts of reasons. Uh, so both Judas and Simon were leaders in the uprising of the Jews. They rallied the Jews and led them uh, in an uprising against the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes. And this was known as the Maccabean Revolt or the Maccabean Wars. 
And Simon and Judas were two brothers, uh, sons of the priest Mattathias, uh, whose family rose to heroic status during this time because of their bravery and because of what they did uh, to rally uh, the Jews against uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. So consequently, as often happens to people who are greatly admired, lots of children in future generations were named after them. And so we have this plethora of Simons and Judases. And I suspect that young Judas probably never really gave his name a second thought. Growing up, no one would have. It was a well-respected and perfectly normal name until the other disciple, also named Judas, betrayed Jesus. And many believe that that is why the Judas that we are dealing with today has so many different names to try and differentiate him from the Judas who betrayed Jesus, the one with the tarnished reputation. Fourth century theologian Jerome called him Trinomius, which means the man with three names. He was Judas, which means something along the lines of God be praised. He's also Thaddeus, and he's also known as the Baius. Now, both of those are Greek diminutives for the Hebrew word theudus, which means heart or breast. So some take this to mean that Judas uh, was a tender-hearted sort of guy, and others take it to mean that he was a courageous guy. We don't have any way of knowing whether he was one or the other of those or, or both. But as well as his three names, Judas also had three nicknames or epithets that served to distinguish him from Judas Iscariot. Luke, in his Gospel and in writing Acts, refers to him as Judas of James. Now, normally when it's written like that, when someone is said to be of someone else, it means that they are the son of that person. So James is taken to be the father of this particular Judas. Later writings refer to him as Jude, presumably also as a point of differentiation from Judas Iscariot. But this in itself has led to some confusion uh, with the author of the letter by the name Jude in our Bibles. So the author of that letter identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So you can see where the confusion comes in there when you've got a son of James and a brother of James and both of them have the same name. So this author of the letter is believed to be neither of the two disciples by the name Judas, but Judas, the brother of Jesus, who was also Judas, the brother of James who by the time of writing had become quite a leader in the early church. So it was very natural for him to describe himself as the brother of James. And both Jude, who wrote that letter, and James, who also wrote a book of the Bible, both of them introduced themselves as servants of Jesus Christ in the openings of their letters. 
So our particular Judas that we're dealing with today is Judas, son of James, who's also known as Jude, but not Judas, the brother of James, who's also known as Jude, who's believed to be the writer of the letter, Jude. Everyone got it? (laughs) There's a lot of confusion because of so many names the same in the New Testament. But as I said last week, some people say, well, that's how you know it's true, because if it wasn't, they wouldn't all have the same names. I like the author of John's Gospel approach. He steers away from all of that, and he's perhaps the clearest of them all. He simply calls him Judas, not Iscariot. Not that one, the other one. So to summarise, you will find reference to our Judas today in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and also in Acts. You will find his name there within the lists of the apostles that appear in those letters. In Luke's Gospel, and also in Acts, which was written by Luke, he's referred to as Judas of James. In Matthew and Mark's Gospels, he's called Thaddeus. Only in the King James Version of the Matthew account does Labaius appear, and there it's called Labaius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Now, that's due to the different manuscript versions that the King James Version depends on. So each of those records include Judas's name only in the lists of the apostles. We don't learn anything else from them about him. There's one other place where his name occurs and that is in John's Gospel, John chapter 14. And there, as I've said, he's referred to as Judas, not Iscariot. So like last week when we talked about Simon the Zealot, there is a lot that we don't know about this guy. We don't know where he was born. We don't know his mother. We do know his father. His father, we're told, was James, but we don't know which James. Don't know his siblings. Don't know if he was married or not. Know nothing about his education, his occupation, where he lived. Or, and there are no details about his calling as a disciple of Jesus. But unlike Simon, last week we do have one record of something that he said in all of his interactions with Jesus. Those words have been recorded for us. It's just one sentence. And uh, that's where we're going to turn to today. So it was read to us already, that account. You will find those words of Judas in one verse. One question he asks in John 14:22. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, it would be good if you could turn to John 14. This will be easier if you've got a physical copy of your Bible, but if not, you can try with the electronic copy because I want to try and give you a little bit of context for, for where this verse appears. Um, And we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 13, John chapter 13. So the very first words at the beginning of John chapter 13 say that it was just before 
the Passover feast. Right, just before the Passover feast. So John's gospel has Jesus' death timed to happen exactly when the Passover lambs were killed for the Passover feast. So Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. So Jesus is about to become the Passover lamb. He's about to, by his death, save all who would come under the covering of his blood. Now, this feast commemorates something which happened way, way, way earlier in the history of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. So you might remember God sent Moses together with Aaron to appeal to Pharaoh to let his people go, to free them from slavery so that they could go and worship him. But Pharaoh repeatedly refused this request and each time he did, God would send a plague on Egypt. So Egypt was plagued with uh, blood in the River Nile, with frogs, with gnats, with flies. Uh, their livestock died. Uh, they, they broke out in boils. There was hailstones, locusts and darkness. And on the 10th attempt to appeal to Pharaoh, Pharaoh ordered them out of his sight, never to appear before him again. And so God told the Israelites to paint their door frames in blood and to go inside of their homes. Uh, so the blood was the blood of the Passover lamb, to go inside of their homes and to eat the roasted meat of the Passover lambs together with bitter herbs and with um, bread, bread made without yeast. And on that night, uh, in this last plague, the Lord struck down the firstborn of every home in Egypt, except for the homes that had that blood painted over the doorways. He passed over those homes, which is why it's called the Passover feast. And after this great devastation, the death of all of their firstborn, Pharaoh summoned Moses and he ordered the Israelites out of Egypt. And so began their journey into the land that God had promised them. And ever since, even unto this day, the Passover feast has been celebrated by the Jews as a reminder of that time and of all that God did for them in bringing them out of slavery and into the promised land. So the writer of John's gospel here at the beginning of chapter 13 is telling us that we're at the point that what happens next is coming in the context of such a feast. It is just before the Passover feast. And the disciples have gathered with Jesus they're in the upper room. Um, there's going to be a meal that Jesus will share with his disciples. And the gospel records of Matthew, Mark and Luke record for us some of what happened at that meal where Jesus took bread and broke it and they shared the wine together. And uh, 
he instituted the practice that we continue to this day, and we call it communion, where we break bread and share bread and, and wine to remember him. But John's gospel gives us by far the most detail of what was said on that night before Jesus was, had died. And it covers multiple chapters in the gospel from chapter 13 onwards. So we imagine the disciples are reclining at the table, as was the custom in those days when they ate a, a meal like that. Uh, from chapter 13, 26, Jesus has predicted that one of those around the table is going to betray him. And it's going to be the person who takes the bread after he's dipped it uh, and held it out to them. And of course, that was the other Judas, Judas Iscariot, who took that bread and then slipped out of the room into the night to begin the process of betraying Jesus that would ultimately lead to his arrest, to the arrest of Jesus. So our interest today is from John chapter 13 verses 31 onwards. Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, has just left and Jesus says to those remaining, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. So what this tells us is that Jesus knew that in that act of taking the bread and then of slipping away, um, everything was now in motion uh, that would lead to his own crucifixion. It was inevitable. And in his own crucifixion, in his death, he would be glorified and God would be glorified in him. And so he begins now to make the final preparations with the remaining disciples around the table. And he says to them, little children, I am with you only a little while longer. You will look for me, and as I have said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he gives them a new command to love one another as he has loved them. Now these words, little children, are not a phrase that you hear off the tongue of Jesus very often. In fact, you don't hear it off the tongue of Jesus anywhere else. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus addresses anyone as little children using this particular word. In our English Bibles, in many translations, it's softened uh, to mean my children or dear children. But it actually means little children, quite young children. Now, looking around the table, these are the people that he loves. These are the people that he loves the most. And this is an emotional time. He's about to depart from them. Even so, the fact that he uses this particular term of endearment nowhere else should be enough for us to stop and take notice of it and to have a think about what might be going on here. So we're going to hold that for a moment. Now this news that he'll be with them only a little while longer and that where he is going none of them can come 
causes these little children with whom he is sharing a meal, a meal that includes this symbolic bread and wine, it causes them to ask some questions. And there are five questions in all. One of them is kind of an overarching introductory question. And then there are four much more specific questions. And Jesus answers each one of them quite patiently, gently explaining to them over the course of a chapter and a bit what is going to happen. Now, whether it was intentional or not, these questions are very clever, the way this has been set up in John's Gospel, because it mirrors exactly what the rabbis had established for the role of little children in the Passover feast. So when a family would celebrate Passover together, uh, there would be an overarching question, an introductory question would be asked. And this was since temple times. And the question was, why is this night of Passover different from all the other nights? And then that would be followed by four questions, usually from the youngest child in the household or children. And answering these questions would give the male elder of the household an opportunity to um, explain what was happening, what they were doing in the things that they were eating, and to retell the history of Israel to the next generation. And so here, in answering each of these four questions of the little children, Jesus' disciples, Jesus has the opportunity to do likewise. He has the opportunity to explain what's happening and to tell them how their history would be fulfilled in him. So Simon Peter asks the opening introductory question, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus explains that they cannot follow now, but that they will follow later. And then that prompts the series of four other questions. So Simon Peter follows up with the first of these, Lord, why can't I follow you now? And Jesus explains that he's going to prepare a place and that he will return to take them to himself. Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? To which Jesus explains that he is the way, the truth and the life and that no one goes to the Father except through him. Philip then asks to be shown the Father, stating that that will be enough for them. And Jesus explains that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And we've covered each of those questions as we've worked our way through this series looking at these different disciples. So Jesus continues with a promise to send the Holy Spirit and this explanation that before long the world will not see me anymore but you will see me because I live you also will live on that day you will realize that I am in my father and you are in me and I am in you 
Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And then it's Judas, not Iscariot. Judas's turn to ask the fourth and the final question. And he says, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Now, each of these questions that was asked began with the word Lord. Okay, so they're linked in that way. They're linked through this word Lord. But each of them indicate that even at this very late stage, just before the death of Jesus, those closest to Jesus are still not really understanding what Jesus means, nor are they really understanding what's about to happen. Peter thinks that he can go with Jesus right away, right now. Thomas, he seems to think that there's some physical route to get there and that if only he knew this route, he could get there himself. Philip is still struggling to understand Jesus as God incarnate. And Judas, he seems to think that the coming of God's kingdom is going to be obvious to everybody. He can't comprehend how everyone wouldn't know it and they wouldn't see it when it comes. When Jesus comes to reign in power as king, how could everyone not know? He's probably still thinking somewhere along the lines of all the pageantry and spectacle that maybe we witnessed with the coronation of King Charles. Like everyone knew about it, it was a big event. And if not that, then maybe he's thinking of some kind of military effort, like a coup or a war where one empire will defeat the other and a new leader will come into power and there'll be some sort of big victory parade through the streets. Like it's going to be obvious to everyone when somebody comes into power. Judas is still thinking very much in physical terms. And Jesus tells him, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. So God the Father and God the Son will make their home with the ones who love Jesus and who obey his commands. That's what the kingdom of God will look like. At least for now, until Jesus comes again and the physical reality of the kingdom becomes manifest to everybody. The kingdom of God would not break through through a military takeover or some sort of coup and on the seizing of power in the physical realm, it was going to break through one heart at a time in the spiritual realm. And at the request of God the Son, God the Father would send God the Holy Spirit who would continue the teachings of Jesus and remind them of everything that Jesus had said to them. Now that's true in a sense for us. The Holy Spirit does teach us and can bring to our memory God's word. 
But in this context, this promise was to this first generation, to these disciples who were with Jesus, and it was fulfilled in its fullest sense in them. So guided by the Holy Spirit, all of them would reflect on the words of Jesus and they would eventually come to understand things clearly that they did not understand while Jesus was present with them. And as a result, their lives would never be the same again. And indeed, the world would never be the same again. All four of the disciples who asked questions of Jesus at that particular meal demonstrated that they were still thinking in physical terms. Now, interestingly, the disciples whose questions are recorded, they come from each of the three different subgroups within the disciples. So Peter was said to be the leader of that first group, that innermost circle, Jesus' closest companions. He was still thinking in physical terms. Then we have Philip and Thomas, who were from that second group of disciples, who we, you know, we have a lot of things recorded in the Bibles about things that they said and did. And then, of course, we have Judas from that third group of the, the lesser known um, disciples. All of them, even those closest to Jesus, were still thinking mostly in physical terms. Their spiritual senses hadn't yet kicked in fully. And that wouldn't happen until after the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It was that single event, that coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that would make everything different. And each of these disciples excluding Judas Iscariot, from the most well-known to the most obscure, they went and they preached the gospel far and wide. Many of them either wrote it down, and we have it recorded for ourselves here, or they shared their testimony with someone else who wrote it down on their behalf, and that those are recorded here in, in the scriptures for us. They did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And almost all of them would go on to die for their faith. Judas, Labaius, Thaddeus, Jude, son of James, not Iscariot, he took the gospel north. So he went from around about where that blue arrow is up there on the screen, north up to Armenia, and then on into the region that was known as Parthia. He was known as a preacher and a healer and an exorcist. And tradition holds that he was eventually clubbed to death for his faith, which is why he's often pictured holding a club. Of this third group of disciples that we've looked at over the last few weeks, James the Less, Simon the Zealot, and now Judas, son of James, mostly we know next to nothing about them. 
For us, the most distinguishing thing that we know about them is their relative obscurity. But the Lord knows them. And while many of the, the wider group of disciples fell away because Jesus' teachings were too hard for them, these ones remained faithful. And they were among the number at Pentecost who would receive the Holy Spirit. And in that transformative moment, they would be filled with power. And that enabled them to take the gospel far and wide. Ordinary people who didn't really understand the true identity of Jesus or the purpose of his mission during the time that he was with them on earth would go on to do some of the most extraordinary things for him and in his name. They would establish the church against much opposition. They would prevail and they would take the gospel out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And today, from that group of 11 that were remaining, there are 2.38 billion Christians worldwide. And they didn't do it by their own intellect. If you think back over this series, none of them were especially brilliant. They were ordinary people like each one of us here today. They didn't have particular intellect, they didn't have amazing skills, and they weren't especially powerful. They did it simply by staying connected to the source, the source of their power, the source of their inspiration, the source of their wisdom. There is a story told about a man named A.J. Gordon now, he's relatively well known because he was one of the founders of the Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in the USA, quite a well-known theological training institute. And the story is told of him out walking uh, amongst the fields. And he came, as he was looking across a field, he saw a house. And next to the house, he saw one of these hand pumps for pumping water. And he was amazed to see a man working this hand pump with so much power and strength. And this man was ferociously pumping this hand pump and he just seemed to have unlimited energy and to be able to keep pumping this pump seemingly forever. And Gordon was curious at this remarkable feat of strength and endurance and so he started to walk towards the house. But as he got closer to the house, he could see that it was not a man pumping the hand pump. It was a wooden figure painted to look like a man. And the wooden figure was hinged at the elbow and the wooden hand was wired onto the handle of the pump. And as he watched, he came to understand that this was an artesian water source and it was flowing of its own doing. And so it wasn't the man 
who was pumping the water, but it was the water that was ferociously pumping the man that he could see. All that wooden figure had to do was to stay connected to the source and it would be pumping forever and a day. And so it is in God's kingdom. We have seen in our study of the disciples of Jesus as we've worked our way through that the most ordinary of people can do the most extraordinary things if they will just stay connected to the source. God has given us a most wonderful gift, the gift of himself in the Holy Spirit. And we must do our part and just stay connected. Amen. Father, we thank you that there is none of us who are too obscure or too unskilled or too uneducated or just too plain ordinary for your kingdom. We thank you that our worth does not depend on what we can do on our own. Help us to stay connected to you, to live faithfully for you and to allow your Holy Spirit to change us and to work through us. Amen. Would you like to stand?